Hi and welcome to today's episode of Hope, Help, Happiness. Now, over the last couple of days, I have been diving deeper into the book Learned Optimism that has a strap line, How to Change Your Mind and Your Life. This is by Martin Seligman, who is one of the founding fathers of cognitive therapy. And yesterday I looked at learned helplessness, optimism, pessimism, explanatory styles, rumination, and that the cognitive therapy is a cure for depression. And I ended with the five stages of what cognitive therapy is about. So that was yesterday's episode. Now today I've been reading more of the book and starting to look at some of the other aspects of uh, this as an issue. And after reading a chapter that talked about how optimism and the optimistic traits were used to help recruit life insurance agents more effectively, and that was a great success. Seligman started looking at the purpose of pessimism, whether pessimism was uh, necessarily a bad thing, or or indeed what he started doing was questioning its existence. And his question directly from the book is, is pessimism one of nature's colossal mistakes? Or does it have a valuable place in the scheme of things? And it was quite interesting reading the next few pages after that quote because he starts to give the pessimistic approach um, some value in its existence in our lives. And he was stimulated by, stimulated into this line of work by a question asked of him from the CEO of the life insurance company he worked with uh, in identifying optimism in their potential recruits. And it was about whether optimism can be taught to those who are generally pessimistic. So Seligman thought about that and was questioning, well, okay, well, maybe there's a reason why we have pessimism. And what then followed was some explanation of some of the research that's been done, which I found quite fascinating. And there's a, there's a, a thought, he said, that depressed people see reality correctly, while non-depressed people distort reality in a self-serving way. And there's a lovely line where he says, there's considerable evidence that depressed people, though sadder, are wiser. He then describes some research that was carried out where people um, had were given different controls over the control of a light, um, whether a light went on or off. And what they found was that the depressed people were very accurate about their assessment of how much control they had or not, whereas non-depressed people um, they weren't so accurate Uh, and they repeated a few of these studies and the conclusion was depressed people were rock solid exactly accurate whether they won or lost in an experiment where they could win or lose money and the consistent findings apparently over the last decade of research has shown that depressed people most of whom turn out to be pessimist accurately judge how much control they have 
which is quite interesting and it raises the question of, of whether there is value in a pessimistic approach. And of course there is, uh, as, as I'll come on to in a second. Uh, another research that was done was um, Newsweek apparently reported that 80% of American men think they're in the top half of social skills. Now clearly 80% can't be in the top half, only 50% can be in the top half. So someone is, uh, hasn't quite got it right there and they did some research on it and the, they found that the depressed patients judged their lack of skill accurately but the non-depressed patients who were part of the study markedly overestimated, them, overestimated their skills in being persuasive and appealing uh, in the social context. Um, there was another study done with memory and uh, the, those who were depressed or pessimistic accurately de defined how many they got right or wrong, whereas non-depressed people tend to overestimate their, um, their abilities. Depressives apparently own up to both failures and success and that's been um, consistent. And, and the, he uses the term lopsidedness among non-depressives about assessing their abilities and even-handedness among depressives. Um, and there's more, I've highlighted a few statements, so he says there's clear evidence that non-depressed people distort reality in a self-serving direction and depressed people tend to see reality accurately. Um, and the, he asked the question is, is why has evolution allowed pessimism and depression to survive and prosper? Because normally, uh, evolutionary, that those things that affect us negatively will, will be weaned out. Um, and he talks about the fact that our brain was designed for a time uh, just after the Ice Age and that its approach to life uh, has been shaped by over 100,000 years of, he says, climactic catastrophe, waves of cold and heat, drought and flood, and plenty and sudden famine. But these days, it's no longer, uh, that's no longer the case. Um, but he really makes a good case talking about a business, is that there is a need for both optimists and pessimists. So optimists are those who are researchers, developers, the planners, the marketers, the visionaries. They have to be able to dream to create things that don't exist. But an organization like that also needs its pessimists, uh, those who have an accurate knowledge of what, what can work and can't, um, those who are responsible for safety, those who need to have accurate assessments done. And so this uh, balance between the two is really, really important. Um, but there is, so, so, the, so he creates quite a good case for pessimism, but he also says that there's a case against pessimism as well. Um, he says pessimism promotes depression. It promotes inertia rather than activity. Um, pessimism feels bad. Um, pessimism is self-fulfilling. Um, it's associated with poor physical health um, and 
it's not a good place to be for many people. So it's quite interesting seeing that there is a, a he talks about the genius of evolution lying in the dynamic tension between optimism and pessimism continually correcting each other. On the one hand you've got the fanciful ideas of the optimists that are brought down to earth by more realistic pessimists. Yet on the other hand you've got the uh, the negative and draining effect of being pe too pessimistic brought back to, to a balance by those who are more optimistic and have a better outlook on life. So it's an interesting dynamic to explore. And I think from a personal perspective, I've always seen that my tendency to be, um, to, to suffer from this has been a weakness and that my a view on life about being realistic um, has sometimes felt though it's a negative. Um, my scores identify me as average optimism. I'm not 100% sure how accurate that is because I think it's probably more towards pessimism than, than implies. And I do know that I have a tendency to spot things that can go wrong when I'm in working with people in business situations. And when I've had businesses with people in the past, I tend to be able to spot the things that could potentially go wrong and the things that need to be fixed before we can move forward. And when you're working with people who are downright optimistic and driving forward, that can be cause a clash. And if they are stronger characters, as it has been in a number of businesses I've worked in, then I've always felt I've been put at a disadvantage or that I'm wrong or that I feel inadequate because of those. And that's affected my self-esteem, my self-confidence, because it's, I've felt that my contribution has not been valued. Now, there's possibly a reason in that I might not be deploying it very effectively. So my ability to positively contribute pessimism if that's not an oxymoron, um, is not at a high level. That might be part of it. Or it could just be that there's a clash of styles between uh, two strong personalities at both ends of the spectrum. But I've always felt that it's been a, a, down, uh, a negative. And then I was chatting to a friend of mine um, about 18 months ago about this, when I was at a really low point, and I was explaining that I was struggling to feel valued and feel that I had something to contribute. And this guy, extremely intelligent, uh, said to me, and he's known me for 30 years now, and he said that I'm what's, what he would call a canary in the coal mine. And in the olden days, before we created these sensors that could detect low oxygen levels, they would put a canary in a cage and take it down the coal mine. And the canary was most susceptible to changes in the quality of the atmosphere, such that a canary would uh, fall off its perch before uh, it would affect a human. And so the canary in the coal mine was a safety mechanism, a warning signal to spot that something wasn't quite right. And so he used that phrase on me, I'm the canary in the coal mine. And I've been mulling that over ever since he said it and 
chewing that over and starting to realise that, okay, maybe I do have value. It still hasn't made me feel good about myself in terms of that, having those traits. And I'm not sure whether that's because underlying there's all the thoughts that cause the depression or whether I still haven't yet worked out a way of being able to take my unique look on life and apply it in a way that is constructive to something and a way that can be valued. Um, maybe I'm not quite sure. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm waffling a little bit here. But it's been interesting to experience. It might be a positive side to the condition I'm facing. So uh, those are my thoughts for today. Um, if you haven't already picked up that Learned Optimism by Martin Seligman is a really good book to read, then it's a really good book to read. And I'd highly recommend it. If you are struggling with feeling low, with depressive thoughts, and you think you are pessimistic in nature, then it's a perfect book for you to help you understand how that is affecting your life. And as hopefully I'll find out as I continue reading it, how you can do, or what you can do things to help uh, change that. So that's today's episode. Until tomorrow.